Welcome to Packet Pushes, the data networking podcast that gets to go to ITF 99 here in Prague, which is unusual because there's not actually any other podcasters or any other media. In fact, just a handful of enterprise networking engineers around the place. Today, I'm joined by Sean Zandi. Sean, why don't you introduce yourself to people? Hi, Greg. Um, I'm Sean Zandi, work for LinkedIn as infrastructure architect. A uh, little bit of data center and backbone and uh, overall network architecture for the company. All right, so the network architecture is mostly your fault. That's true. Like any good network architect or network senior network engineer, everything's your fault because everything <laughs> slides downhill. Is that right? So the <laughs> next time, the next time you, yeah. your, your LinkedIn page loads slow, yep. email Sean. <laughs> because it's always the network. <laughs> And that is the inestimable voice of Russ White, who also works for LinkedIn. Now, what many of you don't know, and probably don't really care because you just use it, who cares what network they run, but the, the LinkedIn data centers have been going through a massive overhaul. And you've been looking strongly at a combination of what vendor products can offer you and what white box can offer you. And you've been working through the design process and the, and the business process, because there's both of these here, of deciding whether you should be using vendor devices or whether you should be using white box. And I thought that might be a really interesting topic for discussion. We were just talking at the start about how you engaged with a vendor and said, we think these features would be relevant to us. And then the vendor sort of said, well, we don't want to make them for you. They don't, we're not going to put them in. Right. Our, well, LinkedIn, we are expanding like 33, 34% uh, growth every year for the past couple of years. And, um, since 2013-14, we started this project Falco that is about you know white box switching and taking ownership of our hardware and software to some mm. to some extent. Um, the problems that you know comes with scale is that you know you want to own your architecture, you want to run. Uh, at the end of the day, the infrastructure is there to support your application, mm -hmm. and in order to efficiently support your application, you need to tune, you know, change. You need to improve your architecture to make sure that you know users are happy. The, the scale is there. The provisioning. Well, you know, when you're the, operating the, the, the at the your sort of scale, you've got more than just features that you need. It also has to be pricing because when you're spending that, you know, you're not just buying ten switches or twenty yes. switches. You're buying right. a couple of thousand. And the features that you don't need as well, right? Yeah, and when you're buying two thousand switches or you know five, whatever the number might be, if you're buying that many of them with a kitchen sink and you don't want a kitchen sink. Um, then it doesn't really add up. Right. So, uh, well, if, if you remember back in 2000, you had the same set of chassis that was used in a campus network. It was used in you know airports, it was in enterprises, and mm. it was in service providers and data center. Mm. Same line cars, maybe different you know routing engines or different features, but the hardware was the same. Yes. It was a multi-purpose networking that you, you, you configure it differently. And you may pay for licenses differently, but the functionality and internals were exactly the same. The internals mm. of the fabric, the packet forwarding, and IP was well created along with Ethernet and MPLS for a general purpose network mm. so that you can tune it based on your needs. These days, what we see is that uh, we, we realize that we want to change all of those dynamics and customize the network from the hardware to the um, network stack based mm. on your specific needs and usually when, when, when it comes uh, to scale you want to minimize it as much as possible for your certain need you don't want to be affected by the bugs that come with different you know software features you don't yeah. want to have security exploits you want to upgrade as less as possible until you know unless it's needed yeah 
and but you, you also know, all wanna, of this comes as a package. You probably also want to upgrade modularly. That is, if, the, if your BGP app needs to be updated, you don't want to have to replace your entire operating system or even your entire switch. You want to reduce your fault domain as well. Yeah. I'm not necessarily saying that we need uh, something like ISSU or non-stop forwarding or those yeah. kind of thing, but we want to move on and uh, if, if a cabinet mm. goes down, it shouldn't matter. Application should be able to handle it. Mm. So uh, we move the resiliency from the network to the application, hence... Mm. We don't want to pay for those complicated features mm. that we never use, and some other customers may care about it. But yeah. there should be a you know differentiation between the product or in the so implementation. So do you think? So there's an interesting line of thought here where you, Ethernet switches have tended to be one of everything is included, right? right. Uh, and you could use a data center Ethernet switch to run in the campus because it was all a spanning tree. Um, over the years, we're starting to see this. You know, there are data center switches, there are campus switches and they're priced differently, but the feature sets actually haven't been all that much different. You know, we, we used the chassis, which was basically data center stacking, you know, and in a campus, we just used virtual stacking. We used a, an artificial backplane to create a pseudo chassis. So architecturally, they've been sort of the same. What I, I hear you saying is you're actually getting much more into specialized architectures around your data center. Um, that's true. Well, you know, uh, layer two forwarding or spanning tree or any, t any form of layer two Network brings good features like mobility. You don't care about, you know, where's the physical location because your domain is vast and anything mm. can be anywhere. You just, you know, change the MAC address and mm -hmm. things simply work. You can connect a firewall there. You can tag stuff. Uh, but, you know, uh, like any other engineering trade-off, mm. if, if you want to, if you don't, if you want to move to uh, some scalable network, you have to go to layer three, so you want to reduce your fault domains. Yeah. But then you have to solve those problems with different techniques. Yeah. Layer which, three which creates... Adds to the complexity. It's, it's a complexity discussion. Well, it's, al it's always about where you put the complexity, right? right? Whether you push the complexity into the network or whether you push the complexity into the application. And it, many times, as Greg and I have talked about in the past, and I've written blog posts about, and this is like everybody who listens to me or reads my stuff or anything, knows this is one of my shticks that one of those one of those windmills I tilt at constantly is that we in the network world tend to say how high anybody says, could you please jump? And it doesn't, we never push back. Never. We, yeah. we always accept whatever complexity is thrown at us. We always accept everything. So this kind of architecture we're talking about is actually to some degree saying, no. Hmm. It's a simple two-word, two-letter word. No. There's enough complexity here. Let's rethink what we're doing. We, I think you're also realizing that there's many networks in your data center. Right. So you, I think what we're talking about so far is the physical fabric, the physical Ethernet fabric. True. Which is quite different from where the services are located, which will be in an overlay. Well, actually, LinkedIn doesn't have an overlay. Okay. So it's one in the same in our case. This is a very good discussion, when, and it comes with the scale again. When you have a massive network or number of you know servers that you need to manage, you need to create a system that is efficient for different purposes, mm. but it's not necessarily you know the best or most efficient service for the for its components. So if you're serving hundred different terms of networks that that are there for Hadoop clusters for 
your corporate network could be part of it or services related to corporate network, your staging, mm. your production, you have to create a system that is optimized to serve all of them, but it's not necessarily optimal for a, a, you know, a single component. Yeah. I actually think the overlay thing quite often comes in because we think we, we automatically think we need multi-tenancy. Mm. And in reality, most enterprises probably really don't need multi-tenancy. Mm. And we're doing a lot of complexity to either drive applications at layer two mm -hmm. or to drive multi-tenancy and secure, I mean, security, micro-segmentation stuff are very important, but they can be handled in other, in using solutions other than what we use for multi-tenancy. Right. right. And so, and so we so get multi-tenancy is just a way of reducing the failure domain in the event of a, well, security micro-segmentation reduces the failure domain when somebody can escalate laterally. Right. So once you've penetrated the perimeter right. and you've landed somewhere, what right. you want to do is start moving laterally. You want to expand so, your, your sphere. Right. So we often use multi-tenancy to solve that problem, but in mm. reality there are other solutions and they are perhaps less complex than a multi-tenancy solution. They, they, mm. A multi-tenancy solution may be overweight yes. for right. that particular problem set. Um, so there are valid places for multi-tenancy, but multi-tenancy needs to go, be, if you're using it, it needs to go beyond security. It needs to be like, I'm actually trying to separate customers for some reason, from yeah. a resource pooling or for some other reason, right? Yeah. And, and, and Maybe when, the application, like control, like if you've got DevOps, right. you don't want people sprawling True. across yeah. your data center, and so micro-segmentation can be useful there. Uh, it can also be useful for um, dev and pre-prod, so if you don't right. have strongly disciplined um, control, what we've tended to do in the past is to create... Um, multiple physical networks. Or separation it, of duties. Yeah, separation yes, of duties. Not, right. not, it's not a security thing, although it's a, an integrity issue. You don't want people doing stuff on the live database, you know, accidentally, which is what's happened in the past. You know, someone's done a... Wipe the, wipe the live database thinking they were working on the test database. The other yes. use case for overlay that people use is for fault tolerance because yes. their application is bought from somewhere, they don't own the code or doesn't support fault tolerance or any... any it's not like a microservices or it's not a horizontally scalable, it's a vertically scaled... So they need to abstract yeah. the whole infrastructure, including the operating system, so yeah. that they can move the whole system from one place to another and bring it up again. And that's the game VMware has been very powerful at. Exactly. And then you need overlays well. because yeah. you cannot change the address of the whole system. Yeah. So uh, for us, you know, because we own the code, we don't need to move stuff in a live manner from, mm. from the infrastructure perspective. Mm. Application can spawn up somewhere else yeah. and uh, grab the state or it could be stateless with a new address. Mm. And then, um, in that case, you don't need any overlay because you're not solving your problem with address changes. Right. You're solving a different layer. So, the, so one of the points that I've made to a lot of people is that there are things that megascale data centers like LinkedIn can do that just don't relate to enterprises. Like, if, if, or if you have control architecturally or can feedback influence the applications to be modern or to work on that architecture, then some of the design issues that you're solving are specific to your system and not generally relatable to the industry. To some extent. Some yeah, to some extent. But, but, but I would actually argue further that there's something that the average enterprise can learn from this, which is that if we learn to push more of the complexity back into the applications and we learn to have more discipline, mm. then we can actually reduce our complexity by going to a no overlay model, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. the, the, that there's, it's not necessarily going to happen all the time, but you can actually try to drive towards that as a goal and stop mm. just getting trapped in this constant 
jump how high. Yeah. No. You know? Yeah. So when we talk about overlays, we're talking about MPLS as well? Because <laughs> yeah, well, I see MPLS as an overlay. Now, I see it as an overlay. It, uh, MPLS could be definitely used mm. as overlay or could be used as some, for, some indication of yep. type of service or what kind of treatment do you want to do to be that packet. Okay. So I, I can see both So we cases. start using MPLS tags as, a, um, as an identifier to say this is a group of traffic flows. So you use it for as, so, as a cost marker. So or, or for so traffic engineering, for traffic example. Engineering. It, yeah, it's not necessarily right. a tunnel, but you're saying that, all right, DSCP bits are not well known in every implementation, which we, we can talk about vendors. Mm. But what if I you know, tag a stuff with a label that uh, distinguish the, the type of service, for yeah. example? Or how to treat this packet. Right. I want low latency here. I want high bandwidth there. Right. Yeah. And and segmentation is not even um, building virtual topologies is not the same as a full-on overlay. So you have to like try to separate in your mind what it is you're doing with an overlay. Um, for instance, and, and in LinkedIn's case, perhaps you could even say, well, you're going to have a controller that builds virtual circuits and blah blah blah. So maybe you could actually call that an overlay, but it's not carrying IP inside of IP. It's not like I'm actually tunneling things per se. Mm. So it's a little bit different view of where you're trying to go and what you're trying to get done. It's, it's again, you know, it's, it's so I, I think of an overlay more as like a VM. And I think of what LinkedIn is doing as more of a container inside the network. Okay. Right? So I it's, think it's a lighter weight. The it's thing about MPLS is that it's very much an overlay that's bound to the physical network. As opposed to, say, a VXLAN GPE or an NVGRE, which is just sort of aggressively ignores the physical network in a sense. And so you're using the overlay features of MPLS to give you um, slicing of the physical infrastructure as opposed to right. abstraction, I guess. And yeah, and we, we also use you know, MPLST in our backbone. For traffic engineering purposes, mm -hmm. so that if, it, if a link in the middle goes down, I don't want to change the state of the whole forwarding. You know, in the entire network, mm -hmm. I use the same label, but I send it somewhere else through FRR or you know mm -hmm. different mechanisms that are known. Yeah. So, abstraction can solve, can reduce the state or improve the conversions, which MPLS provides. Yeah. The other part of it is, you know, uh, there are works in IETF on SRV6 or segment routing that can be part of the header options. In that case, you know, when you're using SRV6 in form of uh, OSI model, there is no additional header in front of the packet. Right. But instruction is in is, is part of the header as extension headers. Yeah, that's right. So the way the IPv6 header was designed to incorporate MPLS tags, it was assumed that everybody in the world would use MPLS. Yes, and it comes with its own uh, mm. security challenges and uh, yep. bigger header type for uh, merchant silicon vendors. So uh, another set of complexity comes into play with that proposal as well. Sure. So coming back to the, the white box, you're, you seem to be heading down the path of white box right. for now. And yep. part of that was the decision that when you spoke with the vendors, you said, sure, we want, um, we, you know, we need these features. Right. And they said that you couldn't get them in in a reasonable time frame or other customers couldn't get them? Is that a problem? And that led that's, you to end up starting to look at developing that's your own? How, that's how the conversation started. We wanted to have some telemetry features that we can grab from the, the silicon. We realized that all of the vendors that we were using at, at that time at least, and uh, more now, hmm. were actually using the same hardware. 
uh, same silicon, mm. but they had their own operating system abstracting that silicon from us. Mm. So we could not easily uh, change stuff at the silicon layer. And if you have, well, a any uh, bigger enterprise has multi-vendor strategy, then we had to deal with different set of syntaxes and APIs and management tools mm. to support the same silicon. Mm. Uh, we thought that, well, we know how to scale servers because we have hundreds of thousands of servers in our data centers. And they've all got the same or and similar, highly we, similar We silicon. scaled mm. our config management, we scaled our AMF, which is automatic framework, mm. our uh, all troubleshooting you know, tools. How about we extend the same set of tools to our network? Mm. In, in, in every data center, you have 10,000 switches or more. And if you can use the same thing on, based on Linux, that's the that's value that is, you know... Um, uh, it's kind of it's very important. It's a big mm. deal. Yeah. Uh, we we wanted in 2013 we wanted to use some features such as telemetry or another example was BGP flow spec. Yep. We talked to our vendor and we said that we need this feature. It it you know it took about two or three months back to back meetings and the the answer was that BU feels that not many customers are asking for this. In, in fact, you're the only one. Yeah. And you want it for V6 as well. And there's there's no much business justification to move this as a P0 or priority requirement. Yep. But if you had access to the court, if it was, you know, Baird or Quagga or we could, we, maybe we could do it in a week or two. Yeah. But we didn't have any access to it. So we realized that in order for us to take care of our, you know, destiny yep. and architecture, we need that granular control that we can change stuff based on a requirement. Now, it's not just adding stuff like BGP flow spec to Quagga. It's also about taking out stuff. Absolutely. And in a, in a weird way, that's actually more important. It is very important because, you know, you have like two or 3,000 features that are written for different customers, and we don't want to have that code in our infrastructure at all. Mm. Yeah. I can give you a rather interesting example of that from my days in TAC and mm. Escalation. I maybe have told this story on... Mm. I could push before, I don't know, but uh, there was a time when I was in global escalation and I was doing features, and I was actually integrating features and running test images in iOS. Yep. So someone asked me for an EIGRP feature, so I coded it for them just to test it, just to see if it would actually work, and if they liked the way I'd implemented it in the CLI and you know all this stuff to make sure that it would actually do what they wanted to do. So I got my pager went off at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I took the call, and they said, uh, there's a crash in a production network with your name on the compile by. <laughs> and I said, well, this is supposed to be lab code. It's not supposed to be in production, but the customer wouldn't put it in production, so whatever. So I was like, okay, well, I'm awake now. Just send me the tracebacks, and I'll just decode the image, and I'll just figure out what happened. So I decoded the image and pulled it through GDB and started looking at it and realized that a change I had made in EIGRP had actually caused a crash in X25. Which, which wasn't being used. Which was not, not. being used yes. at all. And so it was not even like the change I had done in EIGRP was wrong, was improperly you know, formatted or anything else. Mm -hmm. There was some shift in some data structure that no one could have ever known about that actually misset something over an X25 and actually caused an X25 crash yes. on a router with no X25 interfaces physically installed. Yes. And so this is what you get when you get 12 million lines of code yeah. in like, a single operating system. And I this mean, is what happens in chassis. We have 802.1x code causing switch 
yeah, crashes just, and no one's doing 802.1X. Yes. You know, I've heard that um, in the Nexus 7000. Right. It's part of the reason. Again, you know, Nexus 7000 is, uh, is a Swiss Army knife. It's got so many features in it, but so little code quality. Right. That is very true, um, yes. You know, and uh, we were talking about, you know, you, when you're having a scale network, you are optimizing it for yep. for your system, not for subsystems. And the same thing with Nexus, yeah. for example. Maybe it's optimized for the whole customers, mm. not necessarily you know, specific features that that customer wants. I think it's a, this comes back to maybe, like I'm, I've got a unicorn I'm riding around on the moment. There's a difference between sales and technology. And, and one of the things we're facing is that infrastructure technology, about 50% of the cost of what you pay for is sales. Literally the cost of salespeople right. and resellers and warehousing and distribution and shipping. And those are effectively all middlemen. And so if your business is optimized for sales, as you know, as is the case today, um, you know, Cisco is very much a sales company, HPE very much a sales company, IBM very, very much a sales company, right. um, then your technology decisions are made focusing on the sales use case, not focusing on technology leadership or real technology functionality, right? And so you end up with a product which is bloated with features so that the salesman never has to say no, and you end up with poor technology choices being made. And I believe that white box represents a technology advance in the sense that I don't need, um, I don't need the sales and I don't need the influence that sales leadership you know, this, you know, focus on the deal, got to clean, the, you know, kill the customer, beat the enemy. You know, if we just focused on the technology, then we would actually have solutions that I would want to buy as opposed to solutions that I have to be sold. Um, does that sound reasonable? Is that a, a yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I, I see a shift in market as well that these days you see customers are more, you know, affecting or changing the, the direction of the technology than the vendors. Back in the day, you, you were limited to specific options and you don't have much choice. So you would go with you know vendor C or vendor uh, J yeah. and you were limited to whatever that they offer. Yes. These days, are you, you see more customers are involved in process of what technologies to use and then vendors follow some of them. And that's because the market's scaling up. We're selling more networking, and, and more it, players. We've got more, well, as the market increases in size, more players naturally enter. As the number of volume, you know, as the as you increase units shipped and units in operation, then other people come into the market because it's a bigger market and it's an incredibly profitable market. Like um, the average uh, gross margin on a server is sort of down around 20%, whereas the average gross margin on a router is 65%. So if you're a server maker, you're looking at router makers going, mm-mm-mm, I want me some of that, Right. And even if you're selling at 40% gross margin, you're still two times better than what you're getting for servers. Um, so there is some scales. Like oh, we sell a lot more servers than we do switches and routers. But the point is, is that even so, that's an attract, and so that's inviting competitors to enter that market. So we are seeing trends. And then, of course, the the final part of that is that uh, the manufacturing in China is advancing so fast, and the cost of manufacturing is so cheap that it's easy for companies to enter the market that it's never been before. So, hence Broadcom bringing their ASIC to market. Is that, you'd agree with those statements? Absolutely, generally? very yeah. true. Yeah. And I think that's the natural, you know, Ethernet switching become a commodity market. And that's, that's why most of uh, current vendors are, you know, shifting toward 
some sort of becoming a software company or working mm. on higher layers for orchestration or management yes. or providing some other form of value to the whole providing system, real ecosystem. value like the days of I would like to be able to buy my switches from Amazon really I don't you know I should not have to sit down in a meeting with a vendor and, and waste you know two or three weeks evaluating proposals and the same proposals from three different resets not an efficient buying cycle I think what I really want is to just deal directly with the vendor for the SDN platform. Right. And I don't think resellers have anything to offer me. Um, and increasing, I think that'll play it over time. Let me ask you a weird question. What about, you, you must be using a lot of SF, SFPs. We use a lot of optics, yes. <laughs> yeah. Have you um, found any tips or any tricks around SFPs? A lot of people keep asking me questions like, is OEM SFPs worthwhile? We we Are there certain practices? We use third-party optics. Um, we usually, because we have this multi-vendor strategy, we usually qualify two to three different vendors, mm -hmm. and we work, you know, directly with them. Uh, uh, the one of the things that we did in our recent data center in Oregon, we used a 50 gig technology, which was a split of 100 gig based on um, QSFP, basically technology. Yeah. Yeah. And we realized, because based on some study that we did, we realized that the cost of 50 gig is way less than 40 gig. Mm -hmm. So we moved to uh, 50 gig, 450 gig, you know, uplinks from each top of rack, which provides 200 gig, yep. in a one to three kind of over, over subscription. The, the challenging part was that we realized one of our vendors, in terms of optic, does not use the standard way of uh, using lambdas. And it was not compatible with the other two optic vendors. So you have to mm -hmm. use the same in a in a pair setting, you have to use the same vendor, yeah. um, and that that is not the best you know practice, especially when you want to provision twenty five thousand you know servers in a month. Yeah. Keeping track of what optic goes where ahead of time is is not the best practice. You can and always post, discover stuff later. Post installation would not be fine either because now you've got to carry around double your spare parts. Right. So you're, you're so is, that, is that a failure of the IEEE or is that a failure of the manufacturer for not specify did the IEEE not specify the interface clearly so enough or did customers are moving faster than IEEE. Mm. So these vendors should deliver stuff. Yes. Before standardization and during the standardization there's a lot of fight between vendors which you know specification to use. Yeah. Somebody wins and the other become non-compliant. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's the natural course of this. But to answer your question regarding customers, I think uh, the most important part is that you have to do qualification if, if, if you want to mm. have different set of you know, optics. And some people outsource that activity yeah. to, so to test third-party testers, to test it out for them. Mm. Because optic qualification is not an easy task. There are, no. there are so many things that need to be considered. Just from the temperature, hardware testing, just the rigs to do the testing is, right. they're not cheap. <laughs> so, software test is usually easier than hardware. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you, you may need, you know, special equipment that are pretty mm. pricey for, for basic, for, for optical, you know, choice. Well, at 50 gig, you're running, you're running some fairly sophisticated QAM. Right. You know, um, and so if you want to evaluate the signal com compliance, you actually need some fairly sophisticated hardware to take the signal, and, you know. And QAM signaling is, you know, pretty difficult to decode at the best of times, much less exactly to validate how far it is off spec. So it's, it's a complex, a very complex task. Mm. So that's so you do you feel the IEEE needs to step up the pace there? I mean, is it so? You know, yeah. we've we've seen twenty five, fifty gig, and hundred gig be around for like quite some time, 
and the IEEE really seems to drag its heels. Is that? It's well, I, I, it's funny because I had this discussion with my friends in Finisar last week, and mm. uh, they were telling me that each customer has obviously different network and has different requirement. No, and don't. there are they're all using the same Ethernet. They all use <laughs> the same QSFPs. They all use the same. You know what? So, every are you telling me that every IP packet is hand carved by a little <laughs> elf and it's unique? I give you an example. <laughs> <laughs> There's an RFC for that. <laughs> yeah, for the elf carving. Is it really? <laughs> yes, requirements for the elf carving IP packet creator. I never knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know I'm going to go and look that up now. <laughs> is it real? No, there's not. <laughs> so there. I don't. I don't subscribe to the unique snowflake theorem. Right? right. That's like saying that every. You know, if your network was actually truly unique, then you would be hand carving your own assets and defining your own right. file layers and because you, you, you're unique. You're not unique. Actually, you see this more because applications are becoming a little bit, you know, different yeah. and people like to adjust their network based on the application needs. Some, you know, uh, some people are thinking about QSFP DD. Others are thinking about OSFP. Mm. Chipset manufacturers, you know, are at 6.4 terabit per second. Yep. In order to put 6.4 terabit per second on, on a pizza box kind of setup, you're going to need, for example, 64 port of 100 gig. Yep. With current standardization, you can never, the front panel doesn't have enough space yes. to put 64 interfaces. So one of the requests that we have with our uh, vendors was to, how can I, you know, can you give me, for example, 32 port, 200 gig, so I can split it in my patch panel. Yep. Use and a breakout cable uh, of some sort. Or, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, uh, well, they, 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 they told us that we have, you know, eight different customers, different, you know, web companies. They are asking for different things. Mm. Some people are thinking about 400 gig. Some people are saying that we never need anything more than 100. We wait for the next wave, which yeah. is going to be like one terabit per second. So uh, the reason I ask, you know, different people need different things, I... I, I I don't have any solution for IEEE to focus on which standardization takes precedence. Mm. There's a business factor here, also volumes and uh, R&D. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's very complex. It was not problem. complex. It's all fairly straightforward because you can see it. You, know, you you have to make them in a certain volume to make the a production run viable. Basic business, yeah. A, B. Um, some technologies are cheaper to make in production runs because the viability is determined by how clever the technology is, like whether the technology is actually capable of being manufactured. And um, the fact that certain network architects think that their network is unique and they want to do it a different way to everybody else's also baffles me. Uh, of course. Because most of the time you could just go, that's near enough, I'll use that, and go the same way. So whether you're using 200 gig or 400 gig or, you know, breaking out, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't put 32 ports, on, build a 2RU switch. That could hold the 64 ports of 100 gig. Very true. Yeah. So, and ultimately, I suspect that if everybody just went, yeah, near enough, go with that. You know, I'm not sure that some of those arguments stand up. So really. it's funny, some, because some people think about how about splitting 200 gig, for example, to 8 25 gig, which yep. current standard doesn't support it. And then some people th saying that, you know, I don't need anything to, to I don't need to split 200 gig yep. for server attachment, but I need couple 200 gig interfaces and then I, then I have some 100 gigs to you know split it. The other sort of form of customer they're saying 2RU doesn't make sense because my board and my chipset is well you can put it in real estate is important I can put it yeah. in 1RU why do, should I waste another you know rack unit in my cabinet 
while I have the power and I want to utilize that power based on my real state yes. to optimize my PUE. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, but you know, those some of those arguments 90, are like 99% of customers, I would say, uh, have similar needs. Yeah, but you know, some of the times I just sit there and go, like, you know, suck it up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want it, that's kind of the price you pay, right? And right. the thing is that the way that QSFPs connect to the ASIC is actually incredibly tricky. And the further away you get from the ASIC, the harder and harder it gets to get the SIRDES connectivity up to the QSFP. And that's um, very true. Some people are working on multi-vendor strategy in the chipset, yeah. but when it comes to service, there are few players. Mm. So when you, when you're choosing, you know, your manufacturers, you also need to make sure end-to-end -end mm. from each part of the uh, components of the architecture is really independent and is you know you're dealing with a specific vendors. Mm. It's interesting. It's good fun times. I just wanted to ask about that fire stuff because. Sometimes at that sort of scale, you need to have like a manic focus on the optics and right. the QSFPs. And, and the power consumption is very important as well. Mm. And when we were talking about, you know, putting like 64 port of high density, high speed, temperature becomes also important in a pizza mm. box switch. So, there's, uh, yeah, there's definitely, there are so many things to consider. Mm. And then you add in a, a good size CPU in there. <laughs> Yeah. Some CPU of the modern Intels fun. will use as much as half of your QSFPs. And then your software becomes important. You know, what mm. features you want to use to use the CPU. For example, we're thinking about reducing protocols to simplify our architecture. Mm. We don't want to rewrite syslog, SNMP, uh, uh, redundant protocols that basically carry one inform information from one place to another and mm. they have different syntaxes. We were thinking about minimizing number of protocols to simplify our code because we yeah. want to own the code and using, for example, Kafka or stuff that we have in our servers yeah. to relay information. And so the use of Kafka is really interesting to me because Kafka is a messaging bus. True. Right? Yeah. And the idea is, is that you put a message into the bus and then the message bus as a software, as an app, make sure that messages pass. And right. so it, it starts to enable things like pub-sub models instead of push Kinda, or broadcast exactly. models. So, so it doesn't just enable route propagation in a tried... Like, normally we do route propagation in a network. We just broadcast it out on, you know, OSPF or ISIS. Triggered. Yes. Fingers crossed. <laughs> the guy right. at the other end receives it, and lo and behold, it might work. Whereas if we started to use message buses where you could signal in a consistent way, we could actually grow the routing protocols much more freely, I think, over time. Right. And there, there's a discussion of, you know, moving our management plane to Kafka using uh, uh, Apache. Discussion about moving telemetry. Kafka was created inside LinkedIn to carry logs, audits, mm. and tracking stuff. Mm. Um, moving in a control plane to Kafka is another thing that we are thinking about that we haven't, uh, it, it's a proof of concept. We, we don't have a real answer for it because it has to be reliable. There are certain things that we need to consider. But for management plane is, is is, is pretty straightforward. Yeah. Events, logs, incidents, if we can carry all of these along with servers to a central place, we can record it and then we can go back in time and see what was the state of network yesterday when we had a mm. you know black hole in the network and w what triggered that. And you can have a fairly, like syslog messages are normally UDP, they're not normally confirmed unless you enable TCP syslog and then you end Which, up, you know, yeah. It's very problematic because exactly. it takes a lot of CPU to generate TCP syslog messages and you have to buffer them up if you can't transmit them, etc. So using Kafka gives you a messaging bus which allows you to put a message on the bus and then it'll sit there until it's stripped. 
Right. And, and so you can actually have a high degree of confidence that you're actually getting the messages for a change. Exactly. There's a publisher, there's a consumer. The, the technology is pretty straightforward. If, if you're generating likes, you're the publisher, you're sending it to the channel, and whoever wants to consume that message just mm. gets that message and processes it. So you could send to multiple log destinations. I'm waiting for Greg to say... BGP. It's going to come. <laughs> <laughs> we, sh we should talk about BGP. No, should, no, no, okay. in, in terms of Kafka. <laughs> well, I mean, again, so, you know, BGP, we often use BGP now as a message bus. We do. Yeah. Um, we see a lot of standards coming out of the ITF where BGP isn't actually used as a policy engine or, or even a routing engine. It's actually being used as a message bus or an API. And I... I you know, just had a long uh, YouTube discussion with Sue Hares, and she was there when BGP was more or less invented. And right. and she'll tell you that, it, you know, we didn't design it to do any of the things that we do today. And for me, it looks a lot like a, you know, Stone Age man attaches rock to a big stick with a piece of vine and bangs things. So this is, yeah, exactly. This is the same and thing. And everybody says, oh, we don't need to change. Hammer works well, right? Good hammer, scales excellently. You know, everybody use it. Very good hammer. You know. So we take hammer and we put flat blade screwdriver on one side. Yeah. Like I said about the saw the other day. We make right? bigger rock. We make, work much bigger. Yeah. Yes. And I can turn it sideways and make it into a flat blade screwdriver <laughs> now. Yeah. Whatever. It's like, yeah, it's crazy. I do wonder, you know, it's like a bit like COBOL, but, you know. So, but are, are you using BGP as your protocol now for now, or are you? So, in our, there are two things that we are uh, working on. Currently, we obviously use BGP because simply, well, you don't have any other option. Mm. If you have a massive network and um, you have too many devices that are need to talk to each other and relay information, BGP is the only proven protocol that works, and mm. it works in internet. However, the problem with BGP is that the code is loaded. After you know many years, there are mm. so many features added to it, and uh, BGP was originally designed for internet between different autonomous systems with different policies. So yeah. administrators can tune different policies in terms of you know AS path, or you, you know you know the story. AFIs, in a data center, exactly. In a data center, you are everything is under one administrative domain. It's one fabric, just multiple devices. You don't really need to have the policy framework that BGP offers. So there are other uh, things that we are evaluating. One thing that Russ and I are working on is Open Fabric Project, which is based on, primarily is based on uh, ISIS and digest algorithm, so that we yep. can create one fabric that has topology discovery built and inbuilt mm. and can create the graph of the network and can be easily exported so that we can have some form of end-to-end -end forwarding. Because these transfer vector protocols such as BGP, they don't give you the whole graph. They just know what their neighbors are and what their like neighbors rip. know they about. They only know what the neighbors know. So you, you, you're sense. limited to what your neighbors know. No, and you it, don't get uh, to see that. So, so if you think about BGP, BGP is a bundle of policy and reachability information stuffed in one protocol because it's inter-AS, mm. right? And it's primarily focused on inter AS and on policy. So, so that's why when you build a leaf spine, every spine is a different AS. Yes. Because the only way you can have enough data is to create an yeah, AS. This is how do you scale it? Because you're removing information from BGP, so hence it can work in internet. Yeah. Right. So but if you think about a single data center, it's not inter AS. No. It's a single operator. And so there's no reason to mix policy and reachability in mm. the same system in yes. this way. I mean, there's, And if you there's contain no every route in the data center in BGP um, and in a fast-moving environment, it may actually never converge. I can imagine. Like, BGP doesn't converge well.
like we know in the internet, for example, BGP the never, internet, yeah, the internet never, never converges. It never converges because we just uh, thought it was because Greg was pulling and pushing some <laughs> cable into a computer just so that BGP would. It's never a script compete. I wrote a few years ago. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it, it's, it's like the never converging BGP script by Greg Farrow. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's many myths around BGP. I mean, it, it might work, but it probably works badly overall. And, but it does work, right? So but the other, the other problem is the memory space. In the data center, you have 128, 256 ECMP path. Mm. With the distance vector protocol, you have to keep track of these in different tables because they come from different neighbors. You don't know the topology. Yep. So you have to have extra information in the memory. With a link state protocol, you know the topology, so you don't need to replicate that information, duplicated information, mm. sorry, mm. in different places. So your memory space is going to be much Can you also calculate lighter. paths over multiple hops? So because you actually have the whole link You state. have the whole view. You right. have the whole view. So you can and start to make... That's, that's people are doing in MPLST. You can see the path with the hop is what I'm trying to draw out. That's what people are doing with MPLST, right? They use IGP such as ISIS or OSPF with CSPF capabilities. So mm. they can see the whole path and they can see also the utilization of path. And that's how MPLS takes advantage of link state database. So right. it, it is it, it's what we are already doing. This is nothing new. Mm. It's just we are moving it from our backbone to our data center because right. storage or some specific applications can take advantage of it. And ISIS has some unique features. Like I think we talked briefly about some it's of layer the, two. that. It's and, layer and two. And there's and things you can do to it. And many people know it so you can play with it and people don't whine. Yeah. <laughs> people don't push back because you're not changing the nature of the internet. That's got nothing to do with yeah, what you're yeah. doing. But also there are RFCs, for example, to do auto configuration of ISIS. So you can literally, if you're configuring 10,000 switches in a data center, you actually want them to auto configure or to be zero touch. So they can boot attach themselves to a router ID, then discover a neighbor, self-topologize, and then just start communicating so they can then do reachability to a configuration engine. This is, this is very underrated in a, yeah. in a high scalable data center that you have to build data centers as quick as possible. And we want to, you know, our provisioning to be just plug and play. <laughs> what you actually want is to not be provisioning data centers. You just want everything to plug in and go. And then move straight on to the software that operates yeah. it. I and think. when you look at the configuration of BGP, you have like 20 lines mm. just to make the BGP session work, to come up. Mm. Because there are different IP addresses on each link. There's AS numbers. They're saying that, okay, enable this local AS to come back to me. Hey, Maybe don't make fun of my artisanal organic CLI configuration. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually it's actually a standardized CLI, as I heard the other day, that somebody was asking me, yeah. you know, should we develop to a standardized CLI? And I was asking, which standards organization would standardize the CLI? Yeah. Just, I don't know. It's uh, yeah, very strange. Uh, but it is, a, you know, I, I sort of, you know, that what you're saying there is the, the artisanal handcrafted, you know, down in my CLI workshop carving out from a big chunk of wood, <laughs> <laughs> the CLI, and then, you know. Every, every switch in the entire data center configured differently. Yeah, uniquely. Uniquely. And that's and that's a sort of, and the, you don't need an SDN controller to do that configuration for you. Some of this stuff could be pre-automated. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you can you can obviously automate the configuration of every device being different. Yeah, that's what we do with servers, yeah. right? Imagine you have 200,000 servers in a data center. Nobody goes to 200,000 servers, servers and, and configure them differently. Yeah. But, there, but, but, but there's a radical there's a radical change between. Yeah, we, can, we don't do artisanal servers. I think yeah. there's a I think there's a market there. Yeah. We need to get a sales team working on that. 
Adding value. <laughs> adding right. value by having unique configurations per server. That's exactly right. I mean, there's a massive market right yeah, there. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, even if you... If, and, and the thing about DevOps is that it automates the unique configurations. And that's good. I mean, that is a step forward. Mm. But ultimately, to make a radical revolution, you know, like the old Beatles song or whatever... Mm. <laughs> You've got to go beyond just automating the configuration. You've got to get rid of the configuration. Mm. You know, it's a different world. That's a different yeah. world. And it doesn't all need to be um, declarative, imperative, direct configuration from your SDN controller to the box. There's, there, I mean, I'm broadly opposed to autonomous protocols like self-determining or, or you know, where routers. I, I regard routing protocols that we use today as basically automated configuration. Greg, or Greg in 20 years. I will still own a stick shift. I will still <laughs> use the steering wheel. <laughs> Not me. I just believe that you need to recognize that a routing protocol is doing autonomous configuration. It's literally loading static routes into your chassis for you, theoretically using an algorithm that you understand, although that's largely untrue, but that's a, an argument for another day. R- routing is becoming, you know, like everything else is changing over time. Routing was there for WANs between, you know, offices or between universities, now servers are participating in routing and they have different resources and they want to, you know, participate like load balancing or advertising some anycast. So um, I think if your environment is secure and maintained by yourself to some extent, you can make it plug and play, but between two different autonomous systems, it doesn't, obviously doesn't make sense. Mm. Well, I think we've reached uh, a natural point at which to, to end up this discussion. Thanks so much to Russ White from LinkedIn and Sean Zandy for coming along today. I won't give out your details because I can just say you can find them on LinkedIn. <laughs> but I'm um, Tish. Right? <laughs> uh, this has been uh, Packet Pushes at the ITF. And thanks very much to Huawei for providing us with the financial support to attend the IETF 99 conference and to be able to bring you these shows. And thanks to our fine guests for joining us today. If you'd like to know more, there'll be some show notes, although in this case they're going to be pretty thin. Uh, If you want to uh, give us feedback or get in contact with us for something that's in the show, you can email us, packetpushes at gmail.com, or you can sign up for our free membership on our website where we've got even more stuff coming at you. And as always, remember that too much technology would never be enough.